you know, as a team, there's always a way out. People build on ideas, they never come from nowhere. I believe in evolution, not revolution. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely Podcast with Monica Briggs, Chief Executive Officer of Child Cancer Foundation. Monica is an experienced and skilled charity leader with years of experience, particularly in the field of health. Originally from the UK, Monica is firmly established in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with an occasional trips home to her native London. We talk about the foundation, the mission, and how her own experience of cancer has helped her to do her job more effectively. Monica is a warm person, someone who leads people through empathy. Before we dive into the show, can I just ask, whatever platform you're on, whether you're on Apple, Spotify, or another, please follow and ensure we get future episodes downloaded. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Monica Briggs. Welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thank you. You're the Chief Executive of the Child Cancer Foundation. What's its mission? What's its purpose? Our mission at Child Cancer Foundation is to walk alongside and support all Tamariki and families going through childhood cancer journey and to help with improvements to child cancer care. So it's a vision that the whole entity ascribes to has been a part of formulating and is really an evolution of the 46 years of the Child Cancer Foundation's history. Three children every week are diagnosed with cancer? That's Sadly, three yeah. children a week. So we support over a thousand families are connected to our services at any one point in time. And where does your service begin and end? What age do you support? We support from birth to age 12 with a child, but we stay connected providing services to the whanau up to the age that the child would turn 20. And just for our overseas listeners, so Tamariki's children, whanau's family? Absolutely. And, and that's really what you, you are about the children, but you're actually really about the, the family, the whanau um, supporting them. And, and it's sort of social element, all those things in their lives, the support that they need on the journey because there's so much trauma attached to a cancer diagnosis. Absolutely. I mean, I always think we work in an area of trauma, but also amazing hope. So it is supporting families through what is, you know, the most kind of traumatic time for them with their child being diagnosed with cancer often happens actually the diagnosis quickly, even if there's been months of illness or something not quite right with the child. And then they're suddenly um, flown or traveling to one of the two treatment centers in Christchurch or Auckland, where they are then under treatment often for months and a, and a family member has to give up work, stay with the child. There's separation of the family unit. There's financial implications and hardship. So it's multifactored and life-changing. Yeah, absolutely. And often for siblings, eh? Like it's really challenging for siblings. The whole family is affected. It affects the whole family. And actually the prognosis for children with childhood cancer is actually really good, isn't it? So I think 80% or over 80% 
survive yeah, yeah. their cancer. Yes. But it wreaks havoc along the way, which you've just touched on. Yes. Um, and that's that's the bit that you really focus yeah. on. Look, absolutely. And mm. that's the hope. 85 to 86% of children now in, in New Zealand, Aotearoa, survive cancer for five or plus years, which is the international standard. And that's gold standard internationally. And, you know, we're here to advocate and support those good outcomes continuing and improving. They have improved enormously over the last few decades due to the amazing work of some clinicians and and families working together, which was the genesis of Child Cancer Foundation being formed, actually, was the clinicians seeing the need for more support than they could give in the hospital setting and some psychosocial needs that really came to the fore when they set up some clinics originally uh, outpatient clinics and then they got together with eight families to start with and that really bore the seeds of what became the child cancer foundation with what i believe is wraparound support for each family that is individual to that family because most families needs are the same going through this journey and that lived experience that the organization's based on would will have been a huge advantage i guess because you understand what they're going through yeah we have uh, board members. So um, we have the majority of our board members that have been through Child Cancer Foundation services and had a child obviously diagnosed with cancer at some stage in their lives. And we have some staff as well. And it is sort of part of the DNA of the organisation. And I think it sort of still reflects and honours the genesis of this organisation 46 years ago. And we work still very collaboratively with medical and clinical colleagues to ensure that we're able to deliver that wraparound support and care um, and services that families really need when they're going through, you know, what is a crisis of your child being diagnosed with cancer? Yeah, as a parent myself to four children, like, you know, you want this, you don't mind this stuff happening to yourself so much, eh? but it happening to your children is next level. Absolutely, Mark. I went through cancer myself several years ago. And my daughter was only seven and her little world fell apart. She thought her mum was going to die. She didn't and I was still fine. And I can only imagine and empathise what it must be like the other way around. I mean, it changes your life. And there was a book written that I've got in front of me for the 35th anniversary of Child Cancer Foundation. Pat Wilkes wrote in it that the Child Cancer Foundation is a club that you belong to that no one in their right mind would sign up for. The price you pay to belong is to have a kid with cancer. And I think that just really summarises it. You know, um, it, it, it's a club that nobody wants to belong to. But it's an incredibly supportive club where parents support parents and are so generous in how they do that. Because when cancer calls are often, you never quite um, move away from that club. Do you, You've joined and you kind of join forever, don't you? Because it does change your life in lots and lots of ways. And, you know, I know people, they go into remission, they, exactly. they see through it. Um, exactly. But it still changes your perspective, I guess. Exactly. Mm. And and like we were saying, just the changes that happen as they're going through the treatment and the journey. And then often there's a big adjustment period when families, you know, when the child has finished treatment, uh, come to some sort of new normal life, but never exactly the life that it was before. And, you know, we have these whanau connect groups. We've got 19 of them that, that span the entire kind of geographic coverage of New Zealand who are parents who have been through 
child cancer treatment with a child and through our services and are there to support other families. They run events, they run mum's events, dad's events, they put on amazing Christmas parties where all the kids and families get together. I went down for the Christchurch one this year just before Christmas and it was just amazing how the families mixed and mingled, supported each other in such a kind of gentle and positive way. That peer support is hugely valuable, right? So seeing people have been on that journey and navigated all the challenges, and especially for those who have, you know, recent diagnosis. It can be challenging because not it doesn't work out for everyone. Uh, and everyone's cancer is very unique. Yes. Yeah. In terms of like the, the unique setup of New Zealand, I guess, is that we have one proper hospital. I like to call it keep it simple. But we have one hospital that ultimately will be the main port of call, one children's hospital, which is in Auckland, which is Starship. So for you as an organization, you, most of your, the people that you support, most of those whānau and children that you support, they'll have some interaction with, on the medical side anyway, with Auckland. So well, interestingly, in New Zealand, there's two treatment centers. So there's Starship in Auckland and Chock in Canterbury in Christchurch. So families get Depending on the diagnosis and depending on where they live, they get sent to both. So, so we get referrals from both. Starship has greater capacity, so there are larger numbers that come from Starship than CHOC, but they're both the, the two treatment centres and they're supported by a regional network of clinicians and medics around the country. And you can't support, I think you support about over 300 people any one time? Any... Yeah, yeah, th 350 to 400. But we are through our one-to-one -one services that are delivered through family support coordinators and also the Farno Connect groups that I was talking about earlier that give the peer-to-peer -peer support. And for some, cancer will be manageable and they'll have the, you know, might have the extended family that can support them. There'll be somewhere actually they've got, they're wealthier, you know, like there's, they're, they're less fragile, there's things in their life. But I guess for others, cancer could just be another thing on top that could tip the edge and, you know, could lead to relationship breakdowns or when you're working with families, you can't support them. You don't need to support them all in the same way. But are there some families that they need you more than others? I think that's true of anything in life. You know, there's different support networks, different resources, different ways of families coping. So the family support coordinator Makes con so we get referrals within a couple of days of a family going to one of the treatment centres and the staff member will make contact within a couple of days. They will go and meet the family within a couple of weeks. So it's a very early on relationship and it is about the relationship and they will then stay connected to that family through the whole journey and post it. And like you say, different families have different journeys and different needs. So the family support coordinator will assess what is the assistance required and needed by that family. So last year, we gave out over half a million in direct financial assistance. So things like petrol vouchers to get to and from treatment and for siblings to get to the hospital and the broader family, things like grocery bills, contributions to heating homes in winter so the home is dry and warm for, for the child's return to the family home. We have uh, two holiday homes where families can go and spend time and create memories and have fun together as families. So a whole range, we have specific counselling services that we completely directly fund and 
families can access those. So a real range of both psychosocial support and real direct practical, practical support. support. Yeah, Because the practical support needed or the financial hit is not often talked about. And a lot of people don't realize how big an issue that is. But people are going through grief, aren't they? That, that's what they're going through. Grief of the life, the normal life that they lived only a week before their diagnosis. But grief is, must, is a huge part. Tell us a bit about because people are in different stages of their grief. So grief, I think initially kind of shock um, is what a lot of the families sort of describe it as. And then a kind of over sort of flow of information that they have to take on board and understand. And I mean, most of us have had experience of going to hospital and it's, it's I, I used to work for the health system and I used to find it. I feel very vulnerable when I was at hospital and and sort of disempowered to kind of understand what was going on and keeping track of medication. And so you've got all of that going on, plus, like you say, sort of coming to terms with trying to understand, wanting the absolute best treatment options for your child. So often families will be sort of researching as themselves as well and building relationships with the clinical team. And Part of our work is to give that support to the family around different stages of emotional kind of experiences that they have and build resilience. So that's one of the areas that we look at built res building resilience related to that building connections, making sure connections are kept going through this whole process for families with their broader sort of communities and, and networks. And that's what we measure as part of our, our social impact reporting, that we have a third party do on our behalf to check that we're actually achieving the outcomes that we think we're setting out to achieve. And you are completely reliant on donor support, aren't you, for generosity of, of people and companies and foundations. Absolutely. No government funding no government comes funding. your way. Yeah. How, how challenging is that? It, it, it's pretty tough. Um, you know, we need to raise about six million a year, six, seven million a year. We've got aspirations to raise more than that because we can do more, obviously, with more money, Putia, coming in on an annual basis. And there's amazing things that we could support in both res applied research and sort of the interface between the clinical, medical and support services. So there's always more that we could do. But I'm also blown away by the generosity of New Zealanders, I have to say. And in my job, it's the privilege I get to sort of see all parts of the organisation and collaborate so much externally. And I get to phone our donors. So the team always let me know when they want me to, to phone a donor or make contact with a donor and thank them personally. I did one last night and it was just amazing. Right. And I also phone families when they do something you know, to really help our co-papa, because they don't have to do that. You know, they're, they're the recipients of our services, but so many of them contact me or other members of staff and say, we will do anything we can to get the story out there and get the brand of Child Cancer Foundation out there. And they give their stories, you know, really generously. And I think that's a big thing to put yourself out there. You know, it makes, I, I think it makes you really... You know, there's a vulnerability around laying bare that, that journey and that emotion and that trauma that you've been through as a family. So I always phone families when they do that for us. And 
without doubt, every family and every donor I have phoned in my two and a half years here have always thanked me and the staff for doing what we do. So, I mean, honestly, it's incredibly humbling and it just is another indicator of that generosity of spirit that comes our way. Yeah, because, you know, child, children cancer should be easy to fundraise for. I know it's not, like you're in a competitive sport there. You need to tell your story and... In doing that, you you know the, you need the, the children and the families that you support to to help tell your story. But you, you know your your first thought is for them, so you just need to be protective of them, don't you? Absolutely. I, uh, you know, it, w- we work on a a strengths based model, and we would never want to make a family feel uncomfortable or vulnerable in any way. We have a two-yearly selection of child cancer stars. So it's children who make an application to become an ambassador for the organisation and they're fully supported by their family to do that. And they are amazing. And the feedback we get is it's a real win-win. You know, the family say to me, it's like kind of leadership development for the child and they get opportunity to kind of public speak and go in front of cameras. and That's a uh, crucial bit, isn't it? That yeah. There's something in it for them. Yeah. Like it's a positive. Yeah. You're not just using their diagnosis to, I know you use them to help others, yes. but to, yeah. to raise no, money. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And like I say, families are proactive in coming and saying, you know, we want to give back. What can we do? And we're happy to share our story. And changing tact for a minute and now I'm going to take you you know you've had an incredible four-purpose career growing up maybe at, at school would anyone have thought you end up leading a, <laughs> no a non-profit way. or no way what what was um, what no. was Monica like as a child was she uh did, did you grow up in a family that they were very altruistic and they were- well it, it, I grew up I was one of five children and grew up in the outskirts of London um my father was North Queenslander um, my mother had gone over to Australia as a £10 pommy as a nurse and met him on Thursday Island, which was right at the top of the Torres Straits. And my dad, they they emigrated back to the UK. Mum was eight months pregnant for me on the boat. So I nearly got born on the boat and that was had been registered to Russia. So I'd have been a Russian citizen. So luckily that didn't happen. I got born in London. Um, only just. Only just. Only just. Uh, I was late. And I think as I grew up, um, my dad, although he had a busy job, and it wasn't really sort of uh, sort of consciously talked about, but I was always aware that he was off to meetings. So he was part of a housing aid trust, so a philanthropic housing organisation in London, and he was part of the PTA. And so he he did a lot of actually sort of voluntary work, just quietly sort of in the in the background. And my parents were also affiliated with the church, and they did a lot with that. So I just think by osmosis, you kind of... What was your there. first memory of that? Do you remember a first memory about their kind of community focus? Uh, Not really. I mean, I I remember certain sort of dad just talking in passing about some of the housing issues, you know, and families that were being supported. Interestingly, my granddad in Australia, he set up the air ambulance service for Queensland and worked it in his entire life and lost a son on a mission, actually, age 21. So there'd actually been a lot of because that was the third child that my grandparents lost. 
there'd been a lot of trauma and grief in that family. But there was that ethos of service, I think, through my granddad and my dad. Yeah. And, but never, never, I've never been someone that's had this kind of career plan and approach to life. I've been quite opportunistic and things have come up and I've thought that sounds good or it's time to go or I like the look of that new opportunity. It feels right. And that's how my checkered career has kind of developed. So you grew up in London? Yeah. Grew up in South London. Yeah. And the fact that you were nearly not born in England yeah. and that you, you know, you're sort of, I'd say, let's say conceived in Australia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, did, you know, like a crucial part of growing up is about forming our identity, isn't it? Yeah. And understanding who we are. Did you, did you just end up a little bit down under focus? Like were you? I always had this really strong, positive connection with my Australian family. I'm probably the worst possible combination to be living and working in New Zealand, being sort of British and Australian. But that has enabled me to come to New Zealand was was uh, my Australian passport and nationality. But I always had this incredibly strong, positive connection. My dad kept, used to write aerograms. It was in the days of aerograms and booking a phone call to Australia at Christmas, which was such a big deal. But and and his one of his brothers came to England a couple of times because he, he was an academic and, and did further research and got opportunities to study and work overseas. So there was always a really strong connection my, that my dad fostered. My grandparents would come over, you know, a couple of times in my childhood because it was such a big thing to do it then. And I spent a year in Australia when I could in my early 20s to really spend time with my family there. And I worked in some uh, some amazing places, yeah. So you started your career in hospo? Yeah. Mm. yeah. How was that? That, you know what? I didn't know what to do. My family didn't know what to do with me. So I ended up going to college after school to do a three-year hospitality management course. And kind of looking back now, you know, it gave me such a good basis in all things general management. It, it was tough. And I then went off to do a postgrad year in a multiple retailer in Britain after my three years at uni. And that was the one of the toughest things and environments I've done in my life. Who was that? That was with British Home Stores and the Conrad Group. BHF. So Habitat yeah. and BHF. Yeah, so it was the, the Conrad Group. And they took 100 graduates a year and they had 10 training stores and put 10 graduates in each training store and they deliberately moved you as far away from your home as you could so that it was total focus and dedication to the training in the business and I did it I did it for the year and I then left because it wasn't the environment for me but I got an incredible basic training and yeah some of those early lessons or some of those early experiences helped shaped your Leadership, I guess, style, um, would you say? Or what, what not to do, maybe? But yeah, it, you know, it's really interesting. I, I think it was uh, subconsciously aligning myself to entities that had a value base that aligned with mine. Like, I will never forget when I was with the Conrad Group on this post-grad program for the year. And because we were management trainees and we were sort of part of the management team and they rotated us around all of the different components of store management. And part of that was every now and then doing random bag searches on staff leaving the staff room. And I hated it. I really hated it. Yeah. I felt it was 
been you through know. that myself. Like uh, a trust, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. You know, and every single person that shoplifted, even if it was a pork pie from the food hall and it was a pensioner, they had a policy of take to court every single, you know, and it, I, I just, it, I, I was, uh, it just didn't fit me. I was, you know, like it was like a round hole in a square peg, but I stuck at it because one, <laughs> I, I've got this stubbornness in me that when I commit to something, I do see it through. Um, and, and in hindsight now, all of that, that four years gave me really amazing formative training in all sorts of aspects of working with people in management. So you've done quite a bit of study as well, haven't you? Yeah. So you, and you've in, yeah. ended up in health before you came to New Zealand. Yeah. And that academic side of you, like, is that driven by curiosity? Is it driven by a desire to sort of prove yourself? Where have you? Because you've done multiple yeah, bits I mean, of study, haven't you? That's a good question. Uh, I haven't actually analysed it that way. I think it's sort of a little bit of what I was saying earlier. Opportunities arise and I will go for them even if I then think, what the hell have I done and agreed to? When I came back from my year in Australia, I just thought, I'm going to apply for anything and everything. And I saw this assistantship come up at Huddersfield University for a, an MPhil, um, a Master of Philosophy high degree. And I applied for it, never thinking I was going to get it. I was just in that mood, you know, coming back, you know, nothing to lose. And I, honestly, I couldn't believe it that I got it. I then had to move to Huddersfield for three years. Which is very different to, to London. That, which was very different to London. And I was incredibly fortunate because it was fully paid for because I got an assistantship and I was considered an academic member of staff. So I was given a whole uh, teaching load as well. And that was a blinking baptism of fire. So teaching students near my age, a subject I knew nothing about, that I was having to spend as much time researching as my research. But, you know, it's funny in life, isn't it, the... the decisions you make and the things it exposes you to. I was often sharing offices with people that were doing PhDs that were part funded by the public health unit in West Yorkshire. And they were doing food in schools programs and food and poverty. And we'd always help each other. And I learned about this thing called public health that existed. And that led me to my job when I left Huddersfield University, moving into public health, in North London, in the local authority context, which I absolutely loved. Brilliant job. Got exposed to a bit of everything. A bit. Really sort of learnt all sorts of assets of and, and facets of public health. And then I moved from there to the local authority, the, sorry, the health authority uh, in North London. The, through the work and the contacts I made while I was there, I got offered as a comment to the, nas the then national organisation that was called the Health Education Authority. And again, that was just an amazing opportunity that I never expected to come my way, but did. And that moved down under. So you obviously we talked about the context, but... Is that 1999, so end of the 90s, you, you made the move? Was yeah, that, you'd been building earlier. up to that for um, a while? Not really, no. Again, it, it was luck and timing. So I was on secondment to the Health Education Authority and my year's secondment was coming to an end. I was working in cancer control, interestingly, because I'd done... I'd been involved in writing the cancer control policy for North London when I was in the Health Authority and I'd always wanted to come to New Zealand. When I was in Australia, 
everybody had said to me, get to New Zealand. And I hadn't made it. So I'd had it in my mind. I wanted to get here, came on holiday. And I was just like, oh my God, I could live here because I've got Australian nationality. And within six months of getting back from holiday, I'd been offered a job within the Southern Regional Health Team, as it was then, purchasing public health services. So I then moved and their head office was Dunedin. So that was amazing. I got sent from London to Dunedin. And so you just had to move yourself? Yeah. And what was it like when you first landed? Like, because, you know, Auckland's pretty quiet in global terms, eh? but <laughs> Dunedin. Dunedin's next level quiet. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I'd be commuting in and out of London to the Health Education Authority. And when I came to Dunedin, it felt like I was on holiday. I mean, you know, the, the job was demanding, but every weekend I, you know, was out in central Otago, Tianao, Fiordland. Beautiful parts uh, of the world. It mm. was just incredible. And I had, in the four years I lived in Dunedin, I counted it up, I had 60, over 60 British visitors come and stay because they all thought I was only going to be here two years. I thought I was only going to be here two years, but one thing led to another and I kept getting amazing opportunities and, you know, loved the New Zealand lifestyle. So I ended up staying. Immigrating is hard though, right? Because once that, you know, oh, it's beautiful or I'm really enjoying this, that lifestyle piece settles down and you've got to get a job and you've got to make it work. Has it always been quite straightforward for you? Like, you, you haven't lost your accent, by the way. No. You no, still, you no. still sound very <laughs> no, London. I sound London, don't <laughs> I? 26 years later. Softened a bit, I think. <laughs> um, I think I was really fortunate because I had the job lined I wouldn't come without a job and I had the job lined up. Mentally, I kept renting my flat out in London, although then that got sold when I needed to move to Auckland from Dunedin to fund the house purchase up here. And I'd come with the mindset of, oh, I'm going to come for two years. What an opportunity, you know, a break from everything that was happening in the UK at the time. And things just evolved. I just got these amazing opportunities. The RHA became the THA, became the HFA, became the Ministry of Health. And I kept getting seconded onto national projects that were the cusp between mental health and public health. So that was like challenging and new and put me in touch with some incredible people up and down the country um, to evolve that work. And then the job at Auckland Regional Public Health Services came up and I applied for that and got it because the Ministry of Health was wanting to centralise more in Wellington. So the Dunedin office was becoming very professionally isolating. Because one of the things of growing up, as I've done in New Zealand, and I had the opposite to you, an infatuation with the UK and London, but, you know, like often, particularly with health, it looks like there's been a sort of you know, look across the other side of the world and and taken some leadership from the UK. So you would have been a, a real asset to New Zealand Health for that reason, because, you you know, you'd been huge experience there and, and understanding knowledge, and especially when you mentioned that word centralisation, like, you know, that's what Britain did yeah. and has continues to do. But is that how it felt? Or you've, you've I guess you've learned stuff as well, right? Yeah, oh, look, totally, totally. And, you know, the bicultural kind of journey I think New Zealand has, you know, continued to be on um, has been an incredible thing for me to be exposed to and to learn from, which 
was quite different, obviously, in the UK, completely different context to working with different communities in the UK. So learn a massive amount, still masses more to learn here on that front. But yes, uh, England, what shocked me when I came to New Zealand at that time was there was the purchaser, so-called purchaser provider split. And that is not how you operate good public health services. You need collaboration and cooperation. So I sort of on the under the radar started to create some structures to facilitate that on the South Island. The Waipanamu Health Promotion Coalition we formed and people really wanted it, but people were scared to participate too. And I just thought, how awful is this? You know what I mean? Because it's counterproductive to getting good outcomes. But then the whole whole system changed for the better and so you haven't stayed in health as in public health you've you've you know you've had a number of leadership roles outside of that um is that going back to what you said before you you assess opportunities when they come up and you you always want to keep learning keep developing absolutely yeah yeah no i've always enjoyed learning from people and learning in a structured way as well yeah so you're working in health and then cancer comes to your door like and i you know like i've worked in a bit of health myself and and i think it's almost you know when a serious illness or something really challenging comes up when you've been around a lot of ill health you've been around people who've been through huge challenges did that rock you more than you think like did, did it really hit you to at your core when i went through my when you went through health, your own health uh, diagnosis no it didn't funnily enough and i'll never forget sitting in my wonderful surgeon's office dr isaac cranshaw and i said isaac you know can you operate on me over easter because of work and blah 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 blah. and he leaned across the table and he went monica i don't make decisions based on people's work schedules i make them on people's health needs and then she turned around and he phoned the health scheduler and said can you fit her in at easter <laughs> i just thought i love you isaac and, and so you're I, quite matter of fact i was it. really pragmatic and matter of fact and i think I don't know why I they caught it early. I had a positive sort of outlook and prognosis to it. Although Do you mind it was saying what tough. sort of cancer it was? Yeah, it was breast cancer. I've had different forms of cancer too, but that was the biggest treatment I've had. And I sort of, I guess, sort of needed to feel I had to keep myself together as much as I could. I had, you know, uh, Holly, my daughter, and work commitments. And I had a really supportive network around me. But I am a slow learner, and I didn't take enough time off to recoup properly. And then that led to severe back problems. And it was the back surgery that was way worse. And that was the time I had to have three months off, and then another three months off. But that's when I handed my notice in at the YWCA, because I just thought, I have got to recover. I have really got to recover properly this time. And that was the most, I think, cognitive, life-changing decision and moment for me. Forced on you because of the back pain? You were, you were forced I, to I, step I, out of your it, normal... I, I, I'd, I'd had two years of severe debilitating back pain and then major back surgery where, and I was left with nerve damage so I had to learn to walk again. I had to go under really intensive rehabilitation. And it was that, I think, it was just like, uh, I've got to, to listen to my body. I think the back was like, stop. It was a kind of, you've got to stop. And you only get one back. Yeah, yeah. 
So that's when I handed my notice in, worked with the board at the YWCA. You were CEO of the Auckland. I was the CEO YWCA, of the YWCA yeah. Auckland and worked with the board on my replacement and a, a few strategic projects and moved from the city up to Oriwa because I wanted to see you before I ganked it in life. And so, I, yeah, made those sort of decisions off the back of that and then went part-time and had the fortunate opportunity to get asked to go in and support the Centre for Social Impact in a business development role part-time for a year. And then I moved into the head of centre role there for a while before I came to child cancer. Were you sort of on the wind down? Like, were you thinking, this is my career is going to be, I'm going to live in Oriwa? No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. I just just take biding your time. I did. I just knew. I I, I don't know if I've ever been that planned. I just knew I had to do things differently. And I just knew my body needed proper recovery time. And all my close friends were always like, oh, you're always going to work. And you're, I'm like, no. (laughs) Like, when I had that time off and worked part time, like I really easily filled my life. I think I just get so focused when I am with an entity where the values align and my energy aligns and I'm aligned with the people involved in it that I, I just sort of keep going. And so you're with the uh, Centre for Social Impact for a couple of years yeah. and was it always the plan to, to go back to leading an organisation and because, and, you know, you've got the thing with the CEO is it's often dealing with the problems in life, isn't it? So you weren't tempted to, um, you know, not deal with so many problems in life. Do you know, <laughs> yes, I guess I was. Um, and I enjoyed it, you know. I'm one of those sort of people I don't have to be in a leading role. I'm really happy being in a in a support role too to the leadership. And I've done that a few times in my career too. Once when, when Holly, my daughter, was really young, I took a step out of a CEO role and I went to the Heart Foundation in a you know, senior management role, but but not obviously the CEO. And the same with CSI. And I really happy times, you know, and and learned a lot while I was in both those places. Um, but you know, I got approached for I wasn't looking, and I got approached about the Child Cancer Foundation role, and I just thought it just spoke to me. It's the you know only way I can describe it. It just kind of spoke to me, and. I did the typical female thing. I read the position description. I thought, oh, I've actually got everything they say they're looking for, but that's not always actually what, you know, organisations are actually looking for, what's written down. And it was a blend of that sort of public health cancer policy and research work and health promotion work that I'd done, my own personal experience and the charity work that I'd done. It just kind of seemed a beautiful blend for me to sort of apply my energy here for a while. Yeah, made for you. <laughs> yeah. And so we're talking an organization like so many uh, nonprofit organizations who had, you know, in many ways had their sort of business model ripped up through COVID, in-person fundraising, gone, or certainly paused for a long time. But you've been in the role three years. So you applied, let's go back actually to the process. So you got you got tipped off, but you had to compete with others absolutely, for the role. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And it was a really thorough process. Yeah. And did you did you find in the in that process were you like, I really want this? Do you know it's really interesting? Absolutely. But I did also sort of oscillate a bit around wanting to be absolutely sure it was right for the charity as well as for me. But it was a very 
thorough process. You know, I was sort of psychometric tested a lot. I had several all board interviews as well as a presentation, as well as meeting the clinical team from Starship and Chock. So it gave time to go through that process for both parties. Yeah, you were interviewing them as well as interviewing Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because fit's so important. It's it's fit at that stage of life. Exactly. Exactly. You're, like you said before, around aligning with their mission. Exactly. And then I started here and I was here seven weeks and we went into lockdown. So that changed everything again. So I was incredibly thankful I was able to start and at least meet some people before we went into lockdown. And then we all had to, or everybody had to pivot, you know, our services, our fundraising. We've been incredibly fortunate through the good stewardship of previous people at Child Cancer Foundation that we had reserves that we could eat into. The board were able to take a very uh, measured view. You know, there wasn't a panic, but obviously we need to be financially sustainable to provide the services. So that's, we're still working on it now. And leading a nonprofit, I think, is a really unique proposition because you're, you know, it's the income generation, it's the safeguarding you need to do, it's the, you know, like you need to motivate, inspire, lead, manage, support a team with not very much often, you know, like it's it's really challenging role often. And you've got, um, you know, you, you've had COVID, you've had um, inflation, which has really inf- affected salaries and people need to earn more just to survive. Tell us about your sort of, um, what's Monica Briggs's IP for the ideal nonprofit leadership? Like, what's your approach? Have you got like a way of working? Um, I suppose through sort of instinct and sort of acquired sort of experience, you go about things a certain way, but it's very much for me kind of understanding the DNA of you know, the entity and the the charity and the people, and obviously, like, really focusing on the delivery of the mission and how we can be the best we can and celebrating little wins. So I'm always delighted, and the staff and volunteers here are brilliant at going, oh, Monica, we just want to let you know, you know, and celebrating those little wins because success breeds success in my experience and you build confidence you build trust and then good things start happening you 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 start attracting people to your cause in a way you may never have thought about and having conversations with people that you wouldn't always have conversations with so some of the things i'm really proud of that i've worked on with other people have come out of unusual collaborations when i look back over my career. So I think it's, you know, keeping an open mind and an open heart and really sort of trying to understand the, for here, the the journey and the processes that families go through and the motivations of people to fund us. Because we have, we're really fortunate, we've got really long-standing funders in our corporate funders at Child Cancer Foundation, you know, they are here for the long haul. And obviously, we've got brilliant staff that connect and look after them, but they are very invested in making a positive impact. It's not like an ATM sort of relationship. And that is, to me, so important to foster and to continue for charities, 
you know, really meaningful relationships where there's respect going both ways. And I hope you're looking after that back. And uh, you're, <laughs> I try and walk. you're not on that car from where we were too often. I try and walk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what do you do outside of leading the organization? Yeah. What do you? I enjoy all sorts of things in life. So I do, t- I do seriously try and walk as much as I can. I love it and it's good for my back. I do stuff with uh, friends. My, my daughter's really into dance and musical theater. So I attend a huge amount of competitions and, and concerts and recitals and shows and seeing family. I went to the UK last June, July to, uh, you know, I've gone, apart from COVID, I've gone every year to 18 months and I'm incredibly fortunate that I've been able to do that because family is really important to me and it's been really important that I connect Holly in with her extended family. I'm meeting them in Australia this year. So, yeah, always. And, and you know, I really enjoy, I'm, I'm a bit of a foodie, so I really enjoy anything around food with friends yeah, and family. And being human-centered, like, or people-focused? Is that often challenging when, you know, we talked about the scarcity of resources and needing to decide, you know, what, do you find that challenging or have you found a way of dealing with that, Uh, letting uh, the individual down for the mission? Yeah, I've always, maybe not always successfully, but I've always gone into things with the intent of being respectful, you know, when it's been hard decisions that have, you know, over my career, I've had to make people redundant and restructure and, you know, go, go, go on new sort of strategic directions and journeys and invest in different ways and in different areas. And if you were right to ask me what are the two things that would keep you awake at night is always being the people and the money. That's the, the two. I, everything else to me is always immensely solvable, but that they're the things that would keep me awake at night. And it's it's always, for me, been trying to be as transparent as I can and trying to be as respectful as I can. And like with money things, involving smart people around me, you know, who, you know, as a team, there's always a way out. People build on ideas. They never come from nowhere, you know, and someone will have an idea and it gets built here and there. And then you can trial things. We've been doing this here over the last year. Our patron has set up a new pledge for little stars and it's gaining traction. And it was a kind of conversation and then another conversation. And I honestly think that's how how new things get born. Yeah. And has experience served you well in terms of, you know, when those people issues pop up and you, you know, all the money issues, let's go with those two. So like not being too sensitive and understanding that actually you'll, they'll see through it and you'll see through it. Absolutely. I remember when I was at the YWCA and I got in there and I had to present to the board that things weren't quite the way they had thought they were. And I really naively thought, oh, you know, they'll think, oh, she's discovered this fairly early. She must be on it. But no, it was a bit like shoot the messenger and panic. And I had under it. That was a big lesson for me. I had completely misjudged that. But it was, I, I then spoke to people, funnily enough, at CSI and Foundation North, because they were one of our major, Foundation North was one of our major funders. And they got some pro bono work from KPMG with me, a wonderful partner called Justin Ensor, who worked with a a junior he had on the team to develop a 10-year financial modeling 
uh, for me at the YWCA. And then I got him to come and present it at a board retreat because I thought there's way more mana and resonance to hearing from the expert than hearing from myself. And I remember Justin standing there saying, you have got three years until you have to close the doors. I'm used to working with businesses that got three days. Uh, you have got time to be strategic, use it well. And sort of everything calmed down and we were able to navigate our way out of deficit. And that has really stuck with me. Stay calm and be strategic. And that didn't shut you down. It clearly it didn't lose your it didn't lose your passion for the sector or you wanted no. to stay in it. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. And, you know, again, like here, the YWCA, you know, amazing women who were lifelong supporters of that co-papa, that, that mission, uh, that was, again, incredibly humbling. And the last question uh, was focused on, you know, Child Cancer Foundation. Like, w what does the future look like for you guys? More of the same, it sounds like. I believe in evolution, not revolution. And we have got strategy that's been in place the last one and a half years. We are just entering a process this year to look at Horizon 2, having learned what we've learned we're going to be running focus groups with Tamariki, the children that we support first and then their parents so that we build it into our model of how we are as a, as a charity, that we listen to those that we serve and we learn from that, as well as obviously others to look at what's next, what's the next frontier to help accelerate our mission of supporting all children and families going through this thing called child cancer and improve advance, you know, make advancements to improving child cancer care. Lots of ideas. And it's when you get that coalescence of people and ideas. And I, it's another thing I always believe the answers come from within that wonderful things can, I think, really happen. Monica Briggs, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 